1: newspaper since 1971 bonus time on the ben Jarofsky show as i speak it's friday march 17 2023 saint happy saint patrick's day to one and all uh i as i always do uh will read a headline from a recent uh newspaper uh to sort of like give you a sense of what's going on in the world at the as we do this uh have this conversation because you could be listening to this anytime. You could be listening to this three years from now. Uh, the actual headline that I'm reading is not from March 17th. It's from March 10th. March 10th. So it was a week old, but it deals with the topic that's on the minds of 35% of the people, registered voters in the city of Chicago. The other 65% are Busy doing other things uh, rather than thinking about the election. I assume they're not thinking about it because they don't plan to vote in it. They didn't vote the last time. Anyway, the Chicago mayoral election, Brandon Johnson versus Paul Vallis. Here's the headline from an essay in the Chicago Sun-Times. Chicagoans should start talking about why they're so afraid in the first place. White voters, this is the subhead, white voters can't actually be afraid of violent crime because data shows they don't really experience violent crime. And then uh, by, well, by our distinguished guest, who I am now going to ask to introduce. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself, author of this great essay. Go ahead.
0: How are you doing, Ben? Uh, uh, I'm Alden Lowry. I am uh, an editor, um, a data projects editor, uh, formerly the editor of the Race, Class, and Communities desk at WBEZ. And uh, I write a monthly column in the Sun Times. Yes, any frequent guest on the
1: Ben Jarovsky Show and shared a car with me, Mick Dunkey, and Danny Miyalopoulos about two weeks ago. We drove up to Milwaukee together and we were in a car, ladies and gentlemen, for 12 hours, did not stop talking for one second. (laughs) (laughs) Four of the greatest talkers who ever lived. Uh, Alden is also the person that I always give credit for. He may not have been the first person to alert us to the demographic changes in the city of Chicago, but he was essentially, in my humble opinion, the one who put it in the right context, talking about the tremendous migration out of Chicago uh, by black residents. I urge everybody to check out some of the interviews we've done on that subject uh, from the past. And it was, of course, Alden. I quote him all the time when I when he alerted me to the tremendous migration out of the city by. Ah, uh, black people. I said, "Why, why didn't the people, the people in power, do anything?" To which Alden said, "Well, Ben, I don't think they saw it as a problem." And it's that subtle, very nuanced, little dry style of Alden Lowry that uh, had me laughing, uh, and uh, was so true. Was so true. Uh, all right, Alden, this last essay that you wrote, I know, um, generated a lot of feedback, uh, criticism, and praise. Uh, nothing but praise for me. I thought it was just. Outstanding work. Uh, and coupled with the essay that Natalie Moore wrote today in The Bright One in the Sun Times, I urge everybody to read that one as well. Really, some insights into what's going on, sort of like the subterranean themes of this election that don't get spoken out loud. But if you're a lifelong Chicagoan, as you are, or if you're an old time Chicagoan guy who's lived here for 40 years, like I have, you know it's going on. You know it's there, whether you admit it or not. And most likely we won't admit it. Um, so why don't you just take a moment to uh, I'll read this um, this quote and then you pick up. This is a quote from your essay. You're talking about how uh, areas uh, predominantly white areas in the city where there's not a lot of crime. And you write uh, th- these are people who are voting uh, for Paul Vallis, the law and order uh candidate and here's what you write <clears throat> so why are wo- white voters in and around downtown on the northwest and southwest sides so enamored with vallas and his cr- crusade to make chicago safer they're far and away the safest group in chicago and live in the city's safest communities the answer they're afraid but they can't actually be afraid of violent crime they don't really experience violent crime and then you go on from there uh, why don't you uh Take a little deeper dive on what you were getting at.
0: Go ahead. Um, and so I go on to say that I, I think they're afraid of the communities where violent crime is happening in, in greatest numbers and with the highest rates and that they're afraid of the people who live in those communities. And that that's namely black and brown people. And um, and then I say it fits. And uh, from there, I speak to what I think are very well-documented cases uh, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of awareness that we have around uh, historical events uh, and periods of time when there was very clearly a a fear or I would say palpable fears of of people of color Um, dating back to uh, the establishment of restrictive covenants, uh, you know, a, a century ago. Uh, confining uh, uh, African-Americans who had migrated to Chicago from the South uh, to the Black Belt, kind of really one kind of uh, key neighborhood, kind of the birthplace of Black Chicago. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, but there were covenants all over the Chicago region. Um, and the proliferation of those, again, was uh, to protect uh, these, these white spaces from the encroachment of, of Black people. Uh, When the covenants fell uh, in the late 40s, we saw, uh, I I think, one of the most transformational periods in our country's history, certainly in our city's history, um, where uh, African-Americans started to then branch out, move into other neighborhoods uh, in and around the city. And we saw this massive migration of of white residents uh, to the suburbs, uh, to the north side. Um, and, and like I said, literally just kind of, you know, transformed, uh, the, the city and the region in a number of ways. Uh, and that was happening in Chicago. It was happening in Detroit. It was happening in St. Louis. It was happening in Philadelphia, Los Angeles, New York city, you name it, it was happening. Um, and, and, you know, over the last few decades, we've also seen additional, uh, uh, instances where there has been movement of black, of brown, of of Asian um, residents into these suburban spaces that have been largely white, uh, that were literally kind of created and birthed uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, and uh, and then we see additional movement. We see white residents moving farther out, um, uh, and uh, and so I, I speak to that uh, in the piece. The uh, explosion of Latino population in suburban Cook County and how we've also seen this mass exodus of white residents. It's interesting. We, we hear a lot about the movement of Black people, the depopulation of Black people in the city of Chicago, 180,000 decla- uh, decline from 2000 to 2010, an additional decline of around 80,000, 90,000, if I'm not mistaken, from 2010 to 2020. Um, there was a loss of literally 200,000 white residents from suburban Cook County, I believe, between 2000 and 2020. My numbers might be a little bit off, uh, but in a time period, it might be a little bit off. But there's been this dramatic decline of white population in suburban Cook County. At the same time, we've seen this very large increase of Latino population in suburban Cook County. So I speak to that. There was another little bit of, uh, of analysis I did from 2010 to 2020 looking um, at suburban uh, Cook, suburban Cook County census tracks. and what I was trying to figure out was, what's the uh, what's the strongest correlation in terms of the growth of one group and the decline of another? And the strongest correlation, even with that stat that I mentioned about Latino population growth and white population decline, but the strongest negative correlation that I found was the growth of Asian population and the decline of white population. And specifically in some southwest suburbs, um, you know, western southwestern suburbs, Naperville, Bolingbrook, you're seeing the growth, uh, this uh, strong growth of Asian population and this decline of white population. And so I, I talk about, you know, hey, uh, you know, but those aren't the only places where we've seen that type of thing. It's happening. It's happened in schools. It's happened in churches. It happens in restaurants. It happens in uh, shopping malls. Uh, you know, I think about Ever Black Plaza, as it was called when I was growing up in the in the eighties. Yeah, the Evergreen Plaza uh, shopping mall um, that no longer exists, but it was literally like an an all black shopping mall. It became an all black shopping mall, and it was smack dab in the middle of one of the whitest spaces in the region. Uh, the Evergreen Park uh, uh, a suburb, just uh, essentially bordered by Mount Greenwood and Beverly um, on the Southwest side of the city. And it was uh, amazing to, to see this, this, this space. It's like, none of the people around here want to go to the shopping mall. Uh, there's a red lobster. I talk about this sometimes too. There's a red lobster at Southwest highway and 95th street. Um, if you've ever been there, I'm uh, a big red lobster fan. I haven't been in a while, but, but, but I'm a big seafood fan. So red lobster is what I came up on. And uh, you walk in there, and literally, you would think that that restaurant was at 63rd and Halstead. Um, and it is right out there by Chicago Ridge Mall. Um, so th- there's not a black space really out there. Um, I think about River Oaks, uh, which at one time was a very uh, kind of integrated shopping space and has become a largely black shopping space. And Lincoln Mall out in the south suburbs, and that's a black. Part of the region now, but in the 1980s, it was a much more kind of integrated shopping space. But all of the white shoppers left that area as, for the most part, they've left the, 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 the region, that part of the region. You still have some spaces that are, that are integrated, uh, Flossmore, um, Homewood. Uh, there's still a, a fairly significant white population there, but they abandoned Lincoln Mall. And as a result, Lincoln Mall uh, ended up uh, having to be shuttered because uh, it, it just wasn't able to sustain itself. So uh, so anyways, I, I speak to that. And this is a 700 word essay and I've spoken more than 700 words right here. So I didn't get into the level of depth and detail here. But I talk about this notion of, of fear being applied to uh, communities of color, uh, to people of color. Uh, That white residents have have shown in a range of ways. And so I'm saying I don't think it's a far fetched thing for me to assert that the uh, the this this uh, white voters in the safest parts of Chicago being enamored with Paul Vallis is not really about their fear of actual crime. It's their fear of these people, perhaps that they may attach or associate with crime. And, you know, I've been called a race baiter. I've been called a uh, that I that I called people I'm calling people bigots um, that I and I, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, so, uh, you know, so, so the thing is, I, I would say is that I'm, I'm not calling anybody a bigot. I'm not calling anybody a racist. I don't I don't do that. I I what I will say is that I certainly think that there are. There are folks who have issues with race. And I, I will I will go even further and say I am 100 percent certain that there are many white residents in Chicago, in the Chicago area across this country that struggle, struggle with issues of race. Um, they struggle with perceptions. I, and I, I think it's I don't think it's something that you can blame people for. I mean, look where we live, look at what our history has been. And one of the things i the reason why I push back against the 1776 commission and, and all of this talk about, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're impugning the, 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 the history, the great history of our country. And it's, it's, it's not patriotic talk. And I'm just kind of like, it's real talk people. We've had issues. We, we enslaved people for centuries here. We, we have literally wiped another uh, uh, race of people off the, the the face of this continent, I mean th- that we we we've committed genocide on a on a dramatic scale. Um, we have erected uh, physical barriers. We've erected um, uh, <laughs> psychological barriers. We, we've erected policy that has uh, uh, discriminated and, and 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 prejudiced people for a very long time. And socially, we have acted like a country that has deep issues related around race, related around uh, nationality, related around religion. I mean, that's who we are. That's who we've been. So for us to to uh, you know awaken in 2023 and act like we haven't had those problems and act like there should be no residual issues as a result of that history, I think is really just kind of childish and immature. Um, and so I think it is very real that and, and sensible that there are people who have fears because they've grown up in this country. Uh, they've, they've, been, they've been taught and socialized in a way to fear certain groups of people. And so it makes a lot of sense. And I think saying that and naming that is not calling somebody a racist. It's, 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 it's just real honest talk. Now what I think is a real tragedy is for us to have that history, for us to have that awareness And then act like everything's fine and then point the finger at somebody else that says, you know, hey, look, this is who we are. We really need to deal with this. I mean, I end the, the, the essay by saying why don't we start talking about why we're so afraid in the first place that is not an accusation it is an acknowledgement we've got a problem let's talk about it let's be open about it let's deal with it and to say oh you're a race baiter and you're this and you're that i, I just think is a is a is a real disservice because essentially we're saying we're more comfortable putting our blinders on and acting like everything is fine and you're you know, you're a bad person. You're the you're the real cause of the problem because you're talking about race and we shouldn't be talking about race. I, I don't need to talk about race. This is this is here. It's around us. We're breathing and smelling it and and living it. And, you know, we can either acknowledge that and deal with it or we can continue to have the same problems we've had all this time and, and, and never lift a finger to actually do anything about it. And, and that's the thing that I think is, 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 is really sad.
1: Wow, that's a great riff.
0: And, um, it's a
1: lot to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> you no, know, I, I'll just, I'll just start with the notion, uh, that you, uh, the writer of this piece, and I'll bet you Natalie Moore is getting grief too, for the piece she wrote today, sometimes I urge everybody to read that one as well. Uh, but that you are somehow introducing a topic that people aren't talking about or thinking about is, is so laughably absurd. I don't know how a Chicagoan could utter it, uh, with, <laughs> I mean, cause, uh, all I got, all that I have a few years on you. Okay. As I like to point out all the time. So I'm wiser than you all Uh, but I have heard white people talking about race my whole, well, not my whole life since I moved to Evanston, Rhode Island. I didn't ever, I didn't really hear it. But anyway, point is, Different tones, different, like, language. So, like, in Evanston, which is uh, integrated uh, sort of like on the outside, but not on the inside, if you follow what I'm saying. They have a track system at the high school. And every white person understood that that track system sort of protected their kids. If they got rid of that track system at Evanston High School, Alden, there would be white flight. I'm just telling you that is a fact. OK, or let's definitely affect how white people talk. I remember when I was a young parent in the city of Chicago and my kids were in the grammar school and white parents, we would talk. They were like, there are too many black kids in this class. There's like a tipping point. And Ben, you got to move. <laughs> they would tell me, you got to go move to Evanston. I go, I don't want to move to Evanston. <laughs> so I know it. And these are all like good. Vote for Obama, white people. You get what I'm saying? Um, As opposed to the voting for Sarah Palin, white people uh, from the 2008 election. So, yeah, I just find it so absurd that Chicagoans get so mad. Like when you raise the notion that race uh, is a factor. And uh, I know the response from a lot of uh, people to your essay was, like I was carjacked or I was held up. So I am a victim of crime. So I have a right to be afraid. I have a right to vote for Paul Vallis or any, you know, the law and order type. So those curious, they could have voted for Willie Wilson. Just saying Willie Wilson was tougher in law and order than Paul. Yeah. Just saying that Northwest side. Yeah. Okay. Just pointing that yeah. out. All the,
0: No. And, and, and you know, the, the thing that I thought was also interesting. Uh, so I, I, this whole Paul Vallis thing. Just, I am, I am, I am fascinated by this. I am really fascinated about this. I I take I take nothing away from Paul Vallis. I'm I'm not trying to say that Paul Vallis isn't worthy of people of of people's vote for mayor of Chicago. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. I just want to I just want to put that disclaimer out there. The guy got five percent of the vote the last time around then five percent. That was four years ago. Five percent. And in this first round of voting, he gets thirty three percent he is far and away the leading candidate, uh, a much wider gap between him and Brandon Johnson than we saw last time between Tony Preckwinkle uh, or Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle. Um, I, I mean, by, you know, a, a gap that was maybe five times as wide. I mean, there were a couple of percentage points separating um, uh, Preckwinkle or Lightfoot and Preckwinkle four years ago. And there was more like 10 percentage points uh, separating, uh, uh Allison and Johnson. Um, so uh, I got to think he's got to be considered a heavy favorite. I'm not saying he's going to win, but uh, but I got to think he's he's definitely going to be the, the, the favorite going into the runoff. And it's kind of like, how does that happen? I mean, this is what's going on in my mind. Like what what in the world happened? What what happened between 2019 and 2023? And we've talked about this uh, uh, before around uh, Paul Vallis being the only white candidate here. But I think his message around public safety was the thing that really just jumped out at me. And, and that was why I kind of merged these things together. Um, you know, is there something about the, the voter um, or, or voters being so enamored with Paul Vallis? And then when I looked at a map of where he won, I mean, he see some precincts he carried on the northwest and southwest sides. He was getting, Ben, he was getting like 70 percent of the vote in some places, 80 percent of the vote. 80% of the vote. This guy got 5% citywide four years ago. I'm thinking to myself, you know, what, what is the Paul Vallis tea? What, you know, what has he drugged people? What in the world is going on? And, and, and what I settled upon was, 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 this, was, was, was this notion that, you know, there is a, there, there is a perception that the city has, is, is, is really, and, and I, I don't, I want to say perception is if you know, we don't have issues with, 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 with violence. We do, without a doubt, we do. But we don't have those issues in the places where Paul Bowles was was running up the score. Uh, and, and things are a little more challenged in and around the loop. You know, that's a, a different type of uh, scenario with regard to violent crime than you see out in the northwest and southwest sides. But still, it it I mean, you've got robberies uh, in the loop. The loop, I think, was top 10 in terms of its Top 10 in this, uh, among community areas in the city it was 10th in terms of rate of robberies. Um, you've got um, I think the near north side was top 10 in terms of criminal sexual assault. These are crime categories that are considered violent crime by CPD. Um, and, and that's about it. <laughs> I mean, in terms of th- those places being really high on the list, even though there are certainly a number and, and these things are sometimes a little more well publicized than when they happen in other parts of town. Um, but still, the numbers pale in comparison in the loop uh, and the near north side. Um, but Lincoln Park, Lakeview, while there certainly is crime that happens there, it, the numbers are just pale in comparison to what you see uh, on, a, on, a, on a rate basis in places like Austin and Englewood and North Lawndale, uh, West Englewood, South Shore. I mean, it's, it's, it's like night and day. It really is. And, and so a couple of numbers that I threw in there. Um uh I mentioned four communities that haven't had a homicide since twenty nineteen on the Northwest and Southwest sides. Mount Greenwood, I believe, was one of them. There were a couple of others. Um I mentioned Edison Park hasn't had a non fatal shooting in in, in, in since twenty nineteen. Um I mentioned that the rate of homicides uh, is I think 14 times higher for non-whites compared to whites in the city of Chicago since 2019. The rate of non-fatal, being a victim of a non-fatal shooting is 18 times higher for non-whites compared to whites in the city of Chicago since 2019. And so it's on the strength of those numbers where I say, okay, folks aren't experiencing, white voters aren't experiencing uh, violent crime. But by no means am I saying that no white person in the city of Chicago or that there aren't communities that have at least some concerning level of violent crime. But it pales in comparison to what their non-white counterparts, uh, particularly on, on the south and west sides, are experiencing. And if those places would not vote for Paul Vallis, um, then then why why are other folks voting for him in such great numbers? So th- those are the things that are kind of buzzing around in my head, because as you mentioned, Willie Wilson on the south and west sides and uh, Lori Lightfoot, interestingly, uh, and, and primarily Lightfoot, uh, were the. Kind of number one vote getters um, in South and West Side communities, uh, where the the numbers of violent crime, particularly homicides and non fatal shooting, are are you know astronomically higher than they are in some of those communities that I mentioned. Well, I, I, um,
1: there's so much at play uh, with voter behavior. in My humble opinion is the last election, and again, I'll point out that only 35 percent, roughly, of the city's registered voters voted. So. The big topic for another conversation. Why, and we've had this conversation before, but I think it's time we update it, but not now, another time. Why do 65% not vote? That's astounding. Be a totally different landscape, political landscape, if we had anything remotely resembling the turnout that, let's say, uh, the 19th ward in the Southwest side gets, if we had that citywide, if we had that in the 6th ward, the 8th ward. Uh, I'm talking about these are those are two uh, predominantly black wards on the south side. So that's another conversation for another time. Uh, The reason I mentioned Willie Wilson in particular is that Willie Wilson, a black man, folks who are new to Chicago politics, um, was, in my opinion, to the right of Paul Vallis on the issue of cracking down on crime. And he said it in a way that Paul Vallis didn't even go. Okay. So if your number one concern was law and order, if your number one concern was dealing with crime in a way that you send a message to criminals that no more coddling, okay, which seems to be the central message of um, the law and order crowd. uh, So coddling criminals is why we have crime in Chicago. uh, Then Willie Wilson would have been your candidate. Willie Wilson got clobbered on the northwest and southwest side in these predominantly white wards. So something else is going on, my friends. It's not just crime. And my theory, which this is me, not Alden, so send me the hate letters, not Alden, um, is something I've known since I moved to this town in 81. We are a very tribalistic town, particularly when it comes to black and white. And um, I noticed this for the first time. Pfft, I mean, it really blew my mind in 82 when Harold announced he was running. I couldn't believe it all. No, in 83, really, when Harold won the primary and then the eruption of white people for Epton to- totally stunned me. I admit I was naive, Alden. And uh, you were a senior in high school, I want to say, or somewhere in high school.
0: Anyway, the point I was is... In, I was in eighth, I, eighth grade. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, knew, you know see what i said ladies and gentlemen see what i said well, bit i was only in eighth grade i was barely aware of what was going on uh, <laughs> you're old ben um <laughs> oh my lord anyway my point is just like again You you began by talking about people like sort of in denial about what's going on i do believe there was a surge of its yeah, we can take it back. And I remember this most pronounced in 1989 when Richard M. Daly ran uh, after to fill out Harold's turn. And I, it was just like really strong. And there so many similarities, politically speaking. Daley lined up black aldermen to, to support him, to give, um, you know, sort of send out the message that is an integrated team. It's not anti-black. Uh, you know, look. Comfort, <laughs> comfort white voters, sh- shield them from the notion that there's anything racial about voting for Daley, Shielding them again, this is what Jesse White does, and Walter Burnett does, and Rod Sawyer does. It comforts white voters. So well, I'm not a racist. I'm voting for Paul Vallis just like Jesse White. And it, like you said, when you have, when you have that kind of message going out. You, it's easier to avoid the harder conversations that you're getting at, uh, in your essay and which you've been <laughs> slammed for even raising. So I believe there's that element of tribalism in this as well as fear of crime. Your thoughts?
0: Uh, no, I, I would, I would, uh, I would co-sign on that. Um, the, uh, Natalie and I actually had paired up on a, on a piece, uh, that ran, um, uh, on WBZ.org, uh, uh, maybe a week ago, a couple weeks ago, I think it was a week before before my column. And we talked about um, this notion of, uh, we, we started with this question of, should there be a Black, a consensus Black candidate? Uh, the way there was talk uh, uh, when Daly stepped announced that he wasn't going to run for re-election. And there was talk of, and I think Carol Mosley LeBron was the the, the candidate that, uh, even though she wasn't the only black candidate in, in, in that 2011 election, but there was um, there was discussion among uh, kind of the black, uh, the kind of the elite, the you know kind of civic leaders in, in Black Chicago around, hey, we need to get our resources behind one candidate the way kind of the black electorate did with Harold Washington in '83 and in '87. You know that this is the best path forward, and so we were pondering whether that was something that was needed and necessary. And, um, one thing we, we kind of, kind of the conclusion we came to was that, you know, we've moved beyond that, you know, kind of the black political scene has kind of moved beyond that conversation, but we posed the question, should, 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 should there be? Um, because, uh, effectively what has happened over time in Chicago is that black voters have shown, uh, the propensity to vote for people who are not black. So uh, black voters, particularly in the second half of uh, Richard M. Daley's 20 plus years as mayor got enormous black support in 2003 and in 2007, Uh, we talked about how he literally defeated a Mount Rushmore of black political figures. I mean, to me, it's actually staggering. When you think about it, short of Harold Washington who Richard M. Daley actually lost to when he and Jane Byrne uh, ran against him in 83, he 's beaten just about everybody of note uh, in, in in black political circles in Chicago, uh, Bobby Rush and Roland Burris um, uh, both Tim Evans and eugene Sawyer um, uh, he beat uh, the the brother that was on the Illinois appellate court um, uh, Eugene Pincham. Um, he beat another another guy uh, Gardner, I think was the name, um, who Joseph Joseph Gardner. Gardner, who had had a little bit of a buzz around him in the early nineties. Um, I mean, literally. I mean, he's 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 beaten them all, and uh, he got Dan-
1: Danny K Davis. Yes, Danny Davis. Thank you, thank you, thank
0: um, you. I've forgotten uh, Danny Congressman Davis. So so he he gradually kind of built a. A, a, a dynasty, and he became more powerful through the '90s. But then into the 2000s, once he had really solidified black support, I mean, he was he was he was he was unbeatable. Um, but we have not seen that kind of support for black candidates, uh, particularly in some some parts of of, of white Chicago. And so, uh, so this tribalism that you speak of, I think we we we've, we've certainly we've certainly seen. And so, you know, all of those races. So we, we went from Richard M. Daly, we went to Rahm Emanuel. So a lot of those elections, there was really only there was only one one white candidate. And, and, and so a lot of that support uh, happening in, in, in many white neighborhoods, particularly on the northwest and southwest sides. And so now we have another election, the first time I think since uh, Rahm uh, ran in 2015, uh, where we've had one white candidate. And so that was kind of our closing point you know, we start with this conversation around, should black Chicago uh, entertain a notion again of a, of a consensus black candidate? And it's kind of like, well, we've actually have had a consensus candidate. They just usually have, have been white uh, all these years. So, um, so yeah, I, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. And, 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 and again, it is, I think something that is uncomfortable for a lot of people to, to, to talk about and acknowledge because the sense is that, well, if I do this then, you know, are people going to question, question me and my motivations and are my motivations racial? And, and it, it's around. And, and one of the reasons why I don't use the word racist, why I don't use the word bigot when I'm talking about individuals uh, is because my hope is to not shut the conversation down. And I think when we, when we throw those labels around, it shuts the conversation down. I'm not saying that it's not necessarily warranted, um, that there aren't people who maybe who have earned uh, those labels, uh, but I I, I I try to refrain from using them because because uh, I, I think it and the, the fear of being labeled that I think is what you're speaking to why people don't want to they they're looking for these ways to assuage those 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 um, uh, you know the semblance of, of of that kind of so if Jesse White is is endorsing uh, Paul Ballas then then maybe as a white voter it's okay for me to to endorse Paul Ballas uh, because I wouldn't want to give the impression that by supporting Paul Ballas, I'm I'm saying something that I'm not comfortable uh, uh with people thinking about me um but but I would say as I'm asserting in 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 the essay that I wrote that we we've got some issues and why, why don't we why don't we start talking about what what's what's really kind of underneath uh what we're seeing in these in these election results I
1: I like to point out uh, again, as the old guy in the room, uh, that when Harold Washington first ran in 1983, we had a system back in then, uh, listeners, in which we had a, it was a primary system. So Harold Washington ran in a Democratic primary uh, for the right to uh, run in the general election that followed against a Republican. And in that Democratic primary of 1983, Harold was up against the incumbent mayor, Jane Byrne and Richie M. Daly. Then the state's attorney, Cook County state's attorney. And while you were uh, talking about uh, the black candidates who ran and lost against Daly, I was just in my mind counting down. This is a sign of hell, a cry of help. The black aldermen in '83 who did not support Harold. And I just, did, <laughs> I'm not going to share all the names because they're blasts from the past, and it'll just make me look any more bizarre than I already am uh, with my weird rainman like knowledge of Chicago politics. Uh, but uh, more black aldermen in 83 did not endorse Harold than endorsed him. So there's some parallels again to 2023 where I forget how many number uh, black aldermen have already lined up to support Paul Vallis. So this is a long tradition of uh, black elected officials I, what, how how's the most uh, euphemistic way of saying this, Alden, of being very open-minded about uh, who they're going to support? In fact, if you go back historically, you will find in the 1960s when Martin Luther King Jr. brought his campaign to Chicago, quite a number of black aldermen sided with Mayor Daley over Martin Luther King. There you go. Uh, so there's been the <laughs> – it's a one-way street. When it comes to open-mindedness on racial, this is me speaking on Alden, Uh, it's a one-way street. You will find black elected officials far more open-minded about supporting a white guy than vice versa. I'm trying to figure out how many white aldermen are already supporting Brandon Johnson or lined up to support him. And Right now, other than the socialist, Democratic socialists, I can't think of any. (laughs) I can't think of any. Uh, and they're not even being like challenged about it. I'm. I. I mean. I. I'm. I'm. I'm trying to think. Is it any incumbent white alderman come out uh, for him? No. No one on the north side that I know of. Uh, Scotty Waggersback hasn't. Tommy Tunney hasn't. Brian Hopkins hasn't. Uh, Brendan Ryle. I'm. I don't think any of them have. Uh, Daniel Espada, and again, he's a socialist. So. Alden, there's a history here. We never talk about it. Just your first point. So that question, why are black aldermen open-minded when it comes to endorsing a white man? Why don't white aldermen, why aren't they open-minded when it comes to endorsing Brandon? And I remember back in the day when it was explained to me. Well, Ben, we would support Harold Washington, but he's too militant. We would support a guy like Wilson Frost that they threw that name out. That was an alderman from the 34th Ward. All that I'm just telling you how white people talk. And so I'm like, well, that's funny. When Daley died, Wilson Frost should have inherited the job as mayor because he was president pro temp. I recall Burke, Verdoliak, and all the other white power brokers changing the rules, locking Wilson Frost out. That's the guy you said you would support, White Chicago. So uh, my opinion, Alden, something is going on here in the brains of these people, but we don't talk about it. We pretend it doesn't exist. And what I really liked about your essay is like, you put it out there in a very non-judgmental way, and guess what? They still hammered you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Chicago, Alden, the city you chose to live in. All right. um, I'm going to do a stretch here and see uh, what your thoughts on this. Uh, I sent you an essay. I don't know if you read it. I don't blame you if you didn't. I I was sending you so many essays. Uh, It was um, in the New York Times, and it was an uh, an analysis of what Governor Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida uh, with history books, social studies books. Uh, And um, the... uh, you know, he is cracking down on the notion of uh, influencing uh, children with a biased notion of our country's racial history. Uh, and the, the attitude, uh, Paul Vallis has actually expressed uh, similar thoughts. The attitude that if you expose white children to our history, uh, it they will it'll be devastating for them. Paul Vallis said if you expose white children to uh, the history of race in our country, they'll end up rebelling against their parents and they won't do what their parents said. And he says if you expose black uh, children to our racist uh, racial history, they will end up with it in somehow or other. I'm not quite sure how it works in his brain, but they'll end up being criminals. So if you teach black kids the history of our country, they're going to end up being criminals. Uh, if you don't believe me, folks, just listen to his quotes. Uh, and in Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, his, um, the state has put pressure on uh, social studies textbooks so that they're now editing, self-editing, which is always a dangerous thing. Um, and I'm going to read you an example. Uh, they're talking about Rosa Parks, okay? Um And so uh, in the uh, initial version of of a little uh, textbook description of Rosa Parks, of course, the great civil rights activist who refused to move to the back of the bus uh, and led to a boycott in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, uh, they wrote, uh, they they noted that, um, here we go, Rosa Parks showed courage. This is for grammar school kids. One day she rode the bus. She was told to move to a different seat because of the color of her skin. She did not. She did what she believed was right. And here's the edited version. Rosa Parks showed courage. One day she rode the bus. She was told to move to a different seat. She did not. She did did what she believed was right. They took out the the different seat because of the color of her skin. They took that out, they edited that out. So it's just sort of like, they just (laughs) randomly told this lady, go move to a different seat. (laughs) And by the way, they don't even tell you that the seat was at the back of the bus. You know what I mean? It was not like they went to the back of the bus and said, you must move to the front of the bus. Uh, so I believe that there's a greater movement going on, Alden, uh, to just bury this past. And I saw a correlation when I read that story about, in the New York Times about what Ron DeSantis, the results of his policies in Florida, with what you're talking about in the city of Chicago, your thoughts? Uh,
0: in, indeed, I, I I hadn't had had gotten a chance to uh, to uh, to read that, but uh, um, but but I certainly will. And it, it is you're, you're right. I mean, there's all of the, you know, there's also this this movement that's happening, at, you know, primarily from the right around uh, essentially kind of getting books out of school libraries and out of public libraries that that deal with issues of race. There's also it, you know, things, uh, books that are written by, uh, uh, by members of the LGBTQ plus community uh, as well. Uh, uh, this, uh, the things around, around, around transgendered uh, Americans, so on and so forth. Uh, but, but there is a thread of that, that it is dealing with issues of, of race uh, and some very notable black authors uh, and things that they've written. Uh, they're wanting to remove these things off the shelf critical race theory, which is a a buzzword now for a lot of this kind of pushback. And it's, you know, essentially kind of a a whitewashing of of our history uh, around around matters of race and and racial discrimination. And uh, when people do talk about it, they usually evoke this notion of how it makes white children feel, how it makes uh, white people feel, and uh, which... I think is actually quite interesting because um, you know, there is also uh, an impact uh, to uh, particularly uh, to, 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 to black Americans, to black children. And we don't hear any consideration about that. Uh, but the bottom line is that it's, it, 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 it is, it is a very accurate reflection of, of who we've been. And it, I think it's important for us to, to remember that. Um, uh, uh, and to the degree that it makes people feel a certain way, I think it should also be a part of what we talk about. Um, uh, and, and it's almost like we're trying to uh, assuage uh, white, white guilt, perhaps, or um, we're trying to kind of present this very pristine image of, uh, of our nation and its history. Um, and so anything that is questionable or, or abhorrent, <laughs> you know, we 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 need to we need to completely you know remove that. Um, and I think it's actually very dangerous as well. Uh, I, I've read a little bit in, in terms of uh, demagoguery, if you will, um, you know, populist movements of the past. And that that this is an element of of that kind of stuff uh, that we not only do we denounce or, or diminish some aspects of our history, but then we elevate other aspects of our history um, uh, to whip people into this frenzy. Um, and so um, we are the people who are being victimized. We are the people who are, who are being attacked. And, um, and so we need to push back in order to, uh, you know, for the sake of, of, of our, you know, kind of collective, uh, uh, vision of ourselves um, and also to protect ourselves. And, and, and once you do that, you can get people uh, backing certain kind of political ideologies and movements. You can get them backing certain types of uh, very extreme actions uh, in order to protect and preserve. Um, and so you just kind of, you kind of evolve the narrative to, 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 to whip people into a, uh, into a frenzy I, I can't think of a better word um, and get them doing things that maybe they otherwise wouldn't um, because you're you're literally changing their understanding of what's what has happened and what what is happening and so uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that's what's happening here um, but what I will say is that maybe in 20 years, Um, particularly as we move closer to the, you talk about this tipping point is, is particularly as we move closer to a America that is no longer a majority white America. uh, I just think this is all kind of, the dominoes are all falling into place for some type of very uh, large scale um, explosion of resistance to this notion that white people in America are being attacked our history is being impugned, you know, we're being called racist, You're, we're this, we're that, you know, we will not be replaced, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then you've also got the numbers that, uh, that are also perhaps, and, and, you know, I think an element of what I'm mentioning in my essay is this notion of when people of color are present, when they're encroaching on white spaces, that that is felt as, um, that, that, that feels threatening in some way. And so I, I just think all of that stuff is really swirling around us. And and it is time that we stop acting like this stuff doesn't exist and we're not made to feel uncomfortable in some way that we don't feel uncomfortable in some way that like we this is a time when we really need to talk about this and get it out in the open, because once 2050 hits and whenever that magic time is um, when the, 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 the white majority is lost, um, I fear that we will be beyond a point when we can really kind of have very rational conversations about this because the fear will be so dramatic and strong. We will have heard voices like Trump and others now. You know, at that point for decades, you know, kind of you know, picking in our ear that you know that this is a problem, and uh, I'm so I'm afraid for our nation. Um, Uh, At that point, not having had some very hard conversations to prime us for what it is that's happening, um, and uh, and and figure out how we how we manage through all of those feelings and emotions.
1: Well put. Uh, And uh, it'll be interesting to see if Paul Vallis is elected mayor, uh, how he will handle issues like curriculum in the public schools. Uh, You know, which which direction he'll take it. I have no way of predicting you know i uh of the last three years he has drifted uh right and uh has been playing footsie uh with the with the far right on the MAGA crowd on this issue going out to wake illinois and uh the interview he gave as i said talk about critical race theory uh, but in the last couple weeks he's been drifting toward the center a little bit uh and trying to shed, uh, his reputation that he picked up over the last three years of being a MAGA man. So we, we shall see, uh, if he is, uh, elected mayor Alden Lowry, outstanding work always. Uh, I urge everybody to check him out. It's like once a month, right? Your essays run in the sun times, your columns run in the sun. Yeah. Second, to
0: have that yeah, second, second Sunday, usually that, that, yeah. So it, and it shows up, um, you know, I think it's published online on, on Saturday, but,
1: uh, but yeah. Well, this one, I wasn't even in town. Uh, so usually I read the bright one. that I see your stories in the Sun-Times. They're in the, pa- the newspaper. I take a picture and send you the – because everybody knows it looks better when it's in the paper, I'm just saying. Uh, so it's not just a boomer talking, ladies and gentlemen. You all know it looks better when it's on the paper. Uh, but someone – who I can't remember, but it was like it made new – like people sent it to me. Uh, oh I know young Danny Danny Mialopoulos, shout out sent it to me uh, and I was out of town visiting my kids and so i read it on i read it on a cell phone uh, <laughs> how millennialistic. is <laughs> it uh anyway uh great work as always thank you so much for coming on the show
0: hey Ben thanks uh for, for for inviting me and uh uh it, it's it's always great to uh you know to engage uh and uh always a great a great conversation really appreciate you you uh, bringing me back again. Yeah, we'll probably have this conversation
1: in a month, ladies and gentlemen. We'll probably have whatever he writes next month. I'll bring him back. I'll probably be an analysis of how the April f- if I know you <laughs> we both share the same Chicago reporter roots. Uh, if I know you, there will be a, a demographic breakdown of voting patterns uh, in the April 4th uh, municipal election. Uh, and uh it will be very interesting to take the deep dive in that. Uh, so I look forward to that conversation. All right. that's uh, He is Alden Lowry. I am Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.